0: Hey podcast listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to our new C1 Review, a podcast connecting highlights from three shows. Thanks for joining our conversation. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're looking at information and misinformation about climate science. Fossil fuel companies have created doubt in the minds of many Americans about the reality of carbon pollution scientists have not been effective fighting back.
1: So many people in the scientific community thought that if we just explained our work more clearly, had better graphs, then people would understand and it would all work out. It's very clear that that's not what's going on.
0: Telling a good story is important in reaching out to the public, but collecting the data is also vital.
2: We are building the world's largest constellation of satellites. Our goal over the next 12 months is to take a composite image of the entire planet once every 24 hours.
0: Finding the facts and the story, up next on Climate One. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. These Climate One conversations were recorded before a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan public forum in San Francisco. <music> Climate scientists have been saying for years, decades in fact, that global warming is real and caused by humans. However, the American public continues to debate this settled science, hampering our ability to move forward with solutions. Today we'll explore the role of the media and scientists themselves in getting the facts straight and talking straight with citizens. We'll also look at whether some controversial energy technologies such as fracking and nuclear are making things better or worse. First let's look at some facts on the ground, or rather in the ocean. Climate change is not just warming the air, but the water as well, hurting plants and animals in the sea. But scientists are using satellites far above to plot a course of action. Fishermen and consumers are also getting into the act. Here to discuss the warming and rising oceans is Jane Lubchenco. She was administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in President Obama's first term. She's currently a distinguished university professor at Oregon State University. Later in the conversation, we'll hear from Alex Baker, Director of Business Development at Planet Labs, a startup company that's putting satellites in space and mapping the massive changes to the Earth's surface in near real time. Here's our conversation about the ocean's changing currents. Jane Luchinka, welcome. You are familiar with the oceans. Tell us what's happening. How is climate change manifest in the oceans, both in terms of warming, acidification, et cetera? What what are we seeing in the oceans?
3: So the oceans are most definitely warming, and that's true around the globe. Warmer water also holds less oxygen, so oceans are lower in oxygen than they were before. They are becoming more acidic because the oceans have been absorbing much of the carbon dioxide that people have been putting up into the atmosphere. That's very problematic for a lot of marine life that makes shells or skeletons of calcium carbonate. We've already seen oysters and other shellfish be seriously affected. And obviously, sea level is rising. So there are multiple different ways that climate change is affecting oceans. And that in turn, of course, affects people.
0: Yeah, people who love oysters, that's a really tough one. Can the oysters go somewhere, do something? How can they be protected?
3: A lot of life in the oceans is on the move these days. Some species are moving toward the poles, or deeper, to stay in cooler water. That's not an option for all species, and they're moving at different rates, and so the fabric of the communities is being affected. The interactions, you know, predator, prey, the timing of when they reproduce, there are lots of changes that are underway. And there has been very significant overfishing at a global scale. This has been going on for quite some time. That overfishing and habitat destruction have been really problematic, and all of those factors are interacting.
0: There's also some very positive stories. Fish populations and marine ecosystems have bounced back.
3: We've had some amazing turnaround in addressing some of those problems. The four years that I was at NOAA, we saw very, very dramatic changes in U.S. fisheries. Thanks to really strong legislation that was passed in 2006 and thanks to a very talented team at NOAA and very dedicated fishermen who were really interested in also ending overfishing and some very skilled non-governmental organizations working together, we've really completely turned the corner in ending overfishing in U.S. waters. Currently, there are 32 species that have been recovered and rebuilt. So not only are we ending overfishing, but we're actually rebuilding stocks that had been depleted. And a number of developing countries are beginning to tackle this problem, too.
0: And what should consumers think about when they go to the grocery store to not be... Part of the problem, problem. yeah. So
3: one of the reasons that there has been this turnaround has been more and more consumer interest in buying only sustainably caught or farmed seafood. And we now have the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Card. And so you can go to a restaurant or the grocery store and look up on your uh, app, see what is uh, a good alternative and what to avoid. And the Marine Stewardship Council is the other major certifier of uh, seafood. And that's driven the great big, huge buyers like the Costcos, the Walmarts, and other big chains to commit to buy only sustainably caught or farmed seafoods. And then the other good thing that's happening is creation of many large no-take marine reserves.
0: One person said to me recently that those protected areas are like hospice for fish. It's just where they go to die because the ocean's in such a bad shape. Is that too cynical?
3: They have also been called, more appropriately, regeneration zones or fish banks. Because fish are not being removed they can grow and grow really big, and then that bounty spills over the edges. So they're actually acting to replenish depleted areas around them. Those areas are more resistant to invasions from invasive species. They are more resilient in the face of bleaching events caused by climate change with warmer water. So creation of healthy habitats that are not subjected to fishing or mining or drilling, are likely a key component of making oceans more resilient.
0: What can people do that will have an impact?
3: Really paying attention to the politics of it and having members of state legislatures, of Congress, businesses, communities really show leadership. You know, things happen because citizens want them to happen and make them happen.
0: We're joined now by Alex Baker, Director of Business Development at Planet Labs here at Climate One with Jane Lubchenco, former administrator of NOAA. I'm Greg Dalton. So, Alex Baker, tell us how you got interested in climate and how that brought you to Planet Labs.
2: Uh, High school, I had a a great teacher called uh, Ms. Sharp who introduced geography to me in a way that made me understand for the first time that the pressing issue that will affect my family, the UK, the world over my lifetime and beyond will be climate change which led me to want to build a career bringing innovative financial or technology solutions to the marketplace.
0: And so Planet Labs is mapping the surface of the world in near real time and helps us understand deforestation and other things.
2: Yeah, that's right. So we are building the world's largest constellation of satellites. We're not building a typical constellation which involves very large, very, very costly hundreds of millions of dollars per single satellite system we are deploying what we call microsatellites. What if you could put a camera inside every one of them and operate you know, hundreds of these things? What does that mean? What does that mean for the planet? Can you build a commercial business around that? Can that have societal impact at the same time? So that's basically what we're doing. Our goal over the next 12 months is to take a composite image of the entire planet once every 24 hours.
0: Jay Lubchenco, uh, NOAA's in the satellite business. Is this oh. a threat or a complement to what the government's doing?
3: It's nicely complementary. NOAA and NASA both operate a number of satellites in space that are critically important to providing information that allows us to forecast the weather, but also understand climate change, measure changes in oceans. The satellites that we have are typically very large, billions of dollars expensive, that are imaging the Earth, either the land or the water or both, or the atmosphere. Critically important, but also space, measuring ozone, measuring the chemistry of the atmosphere, measuring rain, critters that have uh, special satellite tags on them, whether it's uh, great white sharks or turtles or whatever, that information is also relayed to satellites. All of those satellites give us an incredible amount of information, but they're very, very expensive.
0: And some of the funding has been challenged, so has the needs of the country for understanding the climate that's coming our way been compromised, and could something like Planet Labs fill that niche?
3: What Planet Labs is doing is really important, and it's sort of a new model, and pretty much the antithesis of the huge satellites that the government operates. And people are really questioning how sustainable the very expensive model is.
0: Sounds like mainframe computers and iPhones sort of thing. Alex Baker, how could your information help people, help responders, bring more information when there's another Hurricane Sandy, another Hurricane Katrina, more superstorms?
2: That's a really interesting and meaningful problem. Um, We will be taking pictures pretty quickly over areas that have been affected. Uh, So in this particular case, we have a partnership with a group called Zooniverse at the University of Oxford, and they have a community of about two million essentially kind of academic citizen scientists that they kind of shoot out pictures to and asking them to tell them what was in the picture. Turns out humans are still like really good at identifying what's in pictures and computers and machine vision not quite there. So hurricane happens, streets get flooded, buildings fall down, ships topple over. You kind of want your first responders to know the lay of the land. Right? What are they walking into? How serious and how widespread is the issue they're facing? Uh, and you can see a lot of that. So we're going to use that system and then pipe the data through a group called Crisis Mappers who work with the United Nations to make sure that that information is in the right hands.
0: One of the things you're seeing is urbanization and deforestation. So tell us how you're bringing new transparency to show mm-hmm. in very quick time what's happening to the surface of the planet related to
2: climate change. I think everyone knows that land use and land use change has been a massive driver of carbon emissions. Forest land being converted to agriculture. So you're looking at China, and you compare one picture this week from one last week, and, like, bridges are built. Towns expand. Lakes <laughs> physically dry up, like, in front of your eyes. You get to see this, right? Um, and I think that's incredibly useful as data set to create for kind of science. There's also commercial value in there. But there's one aspect we don't talk about that frequently. Pictures of what's happening connect with people. Um, and what I personally feel when I see a lot of our images and I see... Uh, changes in agriculture, forestry, farming, urbanization, roads, rivers, is a real connection to what's happening. So I'm kind of excited and interested to see how that might actually have an impact on the human psyche, showing changes within timescales and at resolutions that show humans' impact on the planet.
0: Let's uh, go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
3: Thank you, Holly Kaufman. I'm curious to know if there's an issue of space trash with satellites and if we're able to reuse or recycle them in any way.
0: Alex Baker, your satellites are made in San Francisco. Are they recyclable?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I haven't seen an engineer turn one into a beer can yet, but maybe one of the flight spares over the next six months will end up that way. Are they recyclable? No, they're not necessarily recyclable, but um, we also don't contribute to any kind of issue about trash in space. I understand why that might appear to be a problem, right? You throw hundreds of things up there, kind of, what happens? Are you destroying a global commons? The height we choose to fly at, so the altitude above the Earth, is between kind of 400 and 550 kilometers. Not many people want to put other satellites there, just because it's a little bit too close for the very big, expensive satellites. What that means is we deorbit and burn up in the atmosphere on a pretty you know, routine basis. It's an operational plan we have. Uh, we so they
0: compost. They don't recycle. <laughs> I got it. Okay. Yeah, I
2: think that's right. Next question. Welcome to Climate One.
3: I'm Karina Nielsen, and I am director of the Romberg Tiburon Center, San Francisco State's research laboratory on the Bay. There's a major push right now in policy against sea level rise um, and some to of the a, impacts of climate to change. Adapt, so you I mean think. To, to adapt, to adapt, yeah. adapt. Yeah. yeah, got it. To sort of prevent, you know, the worst impacts of it. So, to the extent that we continue to do that we are reducing people's exposure to catastrophic anecdotal events that seem to galvanize their attention. So the relationship between those two. Yep. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that we need to be flat on on both fronts simultaneously. We need to be pushing ahead to reduce emissions as fast as possible and to be as smart as possible in, in use of energy at the same time, we do need to prepare for changes that have already been set in motion that are going to play out. It's not one versus the other. We need both.
0: We've been discussing the impacts of climate disruption on our oceans with Jane Lubchenco, former administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and Alex Baker from Planet Labs. You're listening to Climate One. all this data from satellites, scientists, and fishermen, what's fueling climate change denial? Some blame the fossil fuel industry's campaigns to sow doubt and confusion, and scientists themselves are not always doing a great job of talking to ordinary people. To explore this issue, I'm joined by a science historian, a science educator, and a science blogger. Naomi Reskes is professor of the history of science at Harvard and co-author of Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco to Global Warming. Joe Rome is founding editor of the Climate Progress News blog and author of Language Intelligence Lessons on Persuasion from Jesus, Shakespeare, Lincoln, and Lady Gaga. And Eugenie Scott is chair of the National Center for Science Education. Here's our conversation about science and storytelling. Naomi let's begin with you. Your book traces the roots and the history. of climate denial through the Cold War, the tobacco area, to today. And one of the central figures is a physicist named Fred Seitz.
1: Fred Seitz is remarkable. He was a very distinguished physicist, worked on the Manhattan Project, the hydrogen bomb, and became president of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences in the 1960s. But towards the latter part of his career, he went to work for the tobacco industry. And he ran a program for R.J. Reynolds Tobacco that wasn't fraudulent, but was designed to distract attention away from the dangers of tobacco smoke. So, for example, they would fund research on other causes of lung cancer, the link between asbestos and lung cancer, the link between radon and lung cancer. So it was legitimate research, but its purpose was to cast doubt on the links between the harms of tobacco and scientific evidence. And then, in 1984, he founds a think tank with a group of other physicists And they turn their attention to a whole set of environmental issues, acid rain, the ozone hole, the role of pesticides in harming the environment. And they begin to challenge the scientific evidence on all of these issues. And the strategy they use is the strategy that Fred Seitz had developed, working with R.J. Reynolds, to cast doubt on the science, to claim there's no consensus, that we don't really know. And since we don't really know, it would be premature to do anything about it. And they pursued that strategy successfully for more than 20 years.
0: And so when there's doubt, there's paralysis, and the incumbents win. Is that essentially exactly. it? Exactly.
1: The point is in action. If the science is unsettled, then it seems logical that scientists should do more research. Uh, let's wait and see.
0: And Joe Rome, it seems that the doubt, the, the questioning, has kind of had the upper hand, certainly been very persuasive.
4: Everything I learned about communications... Getting a PhD in physics from IT, which I summarize as use big words, don't repeat yourself, and be <laughs> as literal and fact based as possible, uh, <laughs> is not only not good advice, it's actually the exact opposite of literally 25 centuries of understanding of effective and persuasive communications. You know, raised to the high art in English language by the Elizabethans who created the two great works of rhetoric, the works of Shakespeare and the King James Bible, and there's a reason why those two books fill up a quarter of all Bartlett's quotations, because they wrote in the figures of speech, and the figures of speech are what make things memorable. They're just memory tricks, rhyme, alliteration, irony, metaphor, and the key to being persuasive is to be memorable. The stuff that's easier for you to remember, you're more likely to believe is true. What, what is memorable is stories. Everybody knows and remembers the story. But, you know, scientists are wary of stories. They often sound too good to be true.
5: Eugenie Scott, your response. Getting the science heard, I think, is what we're all about. And the best way to communicate is to tell a story. But I don't think it's that unnatural. After all, a lot of scientists are university professors. And they have to teach. They have to communicate with their students. And they can't all be doing a terrible job. I would not like to paint as quite as grim a picture as, as Joe is painting. But I think uh, Joe's point was about how we're trained.
0: Naomi and Reskies?
5: We're trained yeah. to think that we're not supposed
1: to be emotional, never express how you feel.
0: Eugenie Scott?
5: Back when I really was a card-carrying scientist, rather than playing one on television, I would write articles about bones and teeth. We talk about facts, we talk about observations, we talk about the conclusions that we draw from our tested uh, hypotheses, etc., etc. But that didn't mean that I couldn't go down to the school board in the town that I was living in and testify in favor of the teaching of evolution as a scientist and I think we need to make scientists aware of that when you are communicating with the public when you go on that talk show when you go to that school board meeting or that uh, congressional uh, hearing that you you tell the stories you try to make that personal connection
0: some people think yeah. that if there's just one more paper one more radio show one more news article that that will change people's minds is that really true or does that sort of you know, gerbils spinning on a wheel, not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> you me
1: It's gerbils. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that so many people in the scientific community thought this was a problem of scientific literacy, and that if we just explained our work more clearly, had better graphs, spoke perhaps in a little yeah. bit less jargony language, then people would understand and it would all work out. It's very clear that that's not what's going on. This is about an organized campaign to undermine the work that we do and to make people think that the science is unsettled. It's not just climate scientists, as you know. It's people who've worked on the history of lead paint. It's people who've worked on the history of tobacco. People have worked on endocrine-disrupting chemicals across the United States. We find these kinds of campaigns being targeted against scientists, and I think this is one of the most important things we need to understand.
0: Joe Rome, let's talk about the media coverage of this. How good of a job is the media doing in covering the, the climate debate? Is it doing a better job or news organizations devoting fewer resources to this kind of work?
4: Is this what we call softball? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um,
1: how much time do you have? Yeah,
4: I have pretty strong feelings about how bad the media has been. Uh, and, you know, over time, it has shifted to being a business. And, you know, when you have to make money, you're basically in the entertainment business. The great. Science reporters, the great climate reporters, have all lost their job. I mean, not all, but let's say 80% in the last five, six years. And then and, and all the science sections in the papers either disappeared or now there's science and health. And so,
0: no... But if science isn't where it's at, then maybe that's okay.
4: The thing is that we've had the emergence of the Internet, of course, and people can communicate directly and simply bypass the media, but communicating with the public is as much a skill that you have to study as anything else. The IPCC is an unmitigated catastrophe. I'm going to
1: tweet that one. uh, (laughs) uh, 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 It's
4: it's amazing to me that they can publish what they publish. You have to know what RCP 8.5 is. I mean, it is unreadable. The part where the IPCC says that all of the warming since 1950 is due to human causes, that's like buried halfway. That is banner headline news. Most people can't even find that in either the synthesis report or working group one.
0: Joe Rome is founding editor of Climate Progress. We're talking about science and climate change here today Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Our other guests are Eugenie Scott, chair of the National Center for Science Education, and Naomi Oreskes, a professor of history of science at Harvard. Naomi Oreskes, there's a refrain heard frequently these days, I'm not a scientist. What is that, Wayne? <laughs> and I think I'm the only one up here without a PhD, so I'm the dummy up here. So explain for us the effect and the intent of that line.
1: Well, it's yet another variation on the theme of denial, because it's basically saying, I don't know.
5: And I don't have to know.
1: The implication is, I'm I don't know. Is there climate change? I don't know. I'm not a scientist. So it's just another way of perpetuating the doubt-mongering strategy that's been going on for a long time.
0: Naomi Oreskes, you went to the Climate March. Some people think that some scientists have crossed the line into activism, and that that jeopardizes their science. Well, anyone who
1: thinks that has never thought about Albert Einstein (laughs) or Niels Bohr. I mean, some of the greatest scientists of the 20th century became very active after 1945 in speaking out in public about the threat that nuclear weapons represented to the future of mankind. And I don't think anybody ever said that Albert Einstein's theory of relativity lost credibility because he spoke up about the dangers of atomic (laughs) (laughs) weapons.
5: Thank you. (laughs) But it raises the bar. It raises the bar. You have to be excruciatingly honest about when am I speaking with my scientist hat on. You know, here's the empirical evidence, here are the tested theories, et cetera, et cetera. This is what I think we should do about them wearing my citizen hat. Because if the public is perceiving that you are shading your scientific research to support your, your policy objective, shall we say, that's when you lose credibility.
4: Joe Rome, if you thought it was wildly inappropriate for your doctor to tell you what was wrong with you and then how to cure it, it would be crazy. And, of course, you know doctors speak in probabilities. They can't even tell you if you smoke two packs a day that you're going to get uh, sick from it. You could live to be 100. It's just that statistically, it's a really, really bad idea. Whereas the expert diagnosticians for the climate problem are somehow supposed to be forbidden from talking about the treatment. It's a very perverse world where that's the case.
0: Naomi
1: My model on this is Sherry Rowland. When Sherry Rowland spoke out about the ozone hole and the threat that chlorinated fluorocarbons presented to the health and well-being of plants and animals and people on this earth, there were colleagues who criticized him and who said he's crossing the line, he's moving into policy. But Sherry's view was, well, wait a second, I'm the expert. I understand the threat that these things represent. And he didn't just say CFCs destroy ozone. He said, and here's why it matters, Mm -hmm. because people will die. The cause is a group of chemicals that we could actually live without, we should do something about that cause. The point is that the cause was directly related to what he understood as an expert. And I think it's crucial for scientists to make those connections. That doesn't mean that you should express your opinion about, you know, what the taxation rate should be or your religious views. I mean, you can talk about them if you want to, but they should talk about things that fall out from their own expertise.
0: Let's speak about religious views. How much of denial of climate science, climate change in America is religious-based, Eugenie Scott?
5: Tiny percent. Tiny, tiny percent. Clearly, religious ideology is the motivator for anti-evolutionism. Straight up, no question. But climate change is much more complicated than that. The major motivators for people objecting to their kids being taught climate change in school are political ideologies and economic ideologies. The idea that climate change is really a liberal hoax that is a socialist plot to do away with capitalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and downhill from there.
0: Naomi Oreskes, you went to the Vatican and talked to the Pope about climate change. Tell us about that encounter and conversation. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it was a great experience, and I think it supports what Eugenie says. It is a religious issue, but it's a religious issue in terms of social justice and care of the poor. And, so, and that's the pro. Um, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think all of us who are at the Vatican, we were very moved by the experience, and we're hoping that the Pope will make a powerful statement on this issue.
0: Joe Rome, you believe that climate needs to be in a moral frame. Why is that?
4: It's a very odd situation for even a scientist to come out and state, we're headed towards a future which is catastrophic. And not comment on the immorality of it. In fact, I would argue that that actually undermines their credibility, because any rational and moral person, seeing where we're headed, would simply—they well, their hair would be on fire, and they'd end up like me.
0: Um, And you know,
4: the great social movements generally are built around the moral aspect of the cause. And there's been advances for you know, the women's movement and LGBT community, but the great mm. remaining disenfranchised group is future generations, and we are simply taking their future from them in a last gasp to live unsustainably for a couple of decades and hope nous les déluge, And it is staggeringly immoral. No one's gonna call us the greatest generation if we allow four degrees centigrade, seven degrees Fahrenheit to happen. So yeah, I think for someone who understands what is happening, to not speak at some moral level, it, it creates such a disconnect. For the public, the public is going to look at this and say, geez, the media doesn't talk about this, politicians don't talk about it, even when scientists talk about it, it's not, they don't, their emotions don't connect with the reality of the situation. So yeah, you have to appear as a coherent human being or else the liars will simply win the day.
0: We're talking about climate science and communication at Climate One. Let's have our audience question. Welcome. Hi, Carter Brooks, artist and philosopher of climate art. So in the conversation of denial, a lot of the focus
4: is on the oil companies on funding this campaign of denial. But I want to suggest that much of the denial is completely natural, right? We live in a different earth than we learned about growing up. So do we have a danger in overemphasizing how it's being funded and not recognizing what's natural about the denial
0: Naomi we've interviewed a number of people here who say that the human evolutionary brain is not well-suited to recognize this threat, and not yeah. all doubt is manufactured. We're wired for tigers in the bushes. We're not wired for yeah. gases that we can't smell, touch, taste, or see.
1: I hate that argument. I just, hate it. I just think it's just such an excuse, you know? Yeah. yeah, it's true. It is true. We have evidence to say that we react more to immediate threats than long-term threats. But you know what? Most people save for their retirement... People plant trees in Israel for the next generation. I mean, we endow universities. So I think that's kind of an excuse.
4: And let me just add, you know, I I think that the notion that humans can't think proactively and long-term is poppycock, particularly now that I'm a father. I mean, once you become a father uh, or mother, all you think about is the future. It's an (laughs) 18-year... A lot of us enjoyed it. (laughs) It's 18 years for a reason... It's evolution, and we're going to have to provide for this kid for 18 years, and and everybody understands that, indeed, what it means to be human is to think about the next generation. And it's only this weird economic system that we've developed, which is so perverse that it drives short-term incentives that actually destroy the ability to think intergenerationally that really has upended
0: our morality. We're talking about climate science at Climate One... Next question. Uh, I'm Felix Kramer, and I'm amazed how often the question is asked, do you believe in climate change? And I never answer that question. I always say something like, I accept the science of climate change, and I push back, and I wonder how you folks respond to that. (laughs) And and how do you talk to skeptics? (laughs) I, I, I,
5: I cut my teeth on evolution as a controversial issue. You'd be surprised how many times people say, do you believe in evolution? And I say, no. (laughs) (laughs) you wait a beat and then you say i accept it because it's the best scientific explanation we have and that's what you should do with climate
0: welcome to climate one my name is peter schweikart i'm a uh, physical geographer there's a disconnect of course between public perception and what i think of as very very persuasive science but i also find an interesting disconnect between the united states and other developed countries I'd be interested in some of your views about that question. Naomi Oreskes?
1: In Europe, you can't discredit someone just by calling them a socialist. In Europe, people accept that the government has an important role to play in a mixed economy. So these arguments that have had such resonance in the United States, that have been taken up by the Wall Street Journal and Fox News, they just don't have the same traction in Europe. Read the Financial Times. Even though it's very conservative and very business-oriented, you will not see anything like the kind of nonsense that
5: you see in the Wall Street Journal. And also there's plenty of survey research on Americans and other citizens of other countries that show that Americans are not at the bottom of the heap in terms of adult science literacy. It's just that we're unusually ignorant about some sciences, like evolution and like climate change.
0: Welcome to Climate One. Hi, uh,
4: my name is Rick Mishlevsky. You people have much better access to the people in Washington, such as, let's say, Inhofe or uh, Cruz and all the deniers. Are they simply venal, or do they <laughs> really believe what they are saying?
0: Joe, you probably have lunch with those guys. Can you?
4: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I did go to a dinner once with those guys. If you're asking whether they're sincere, there's a lot of them who, oh. who are sincere. Are there people who know? that they are lying, there's no question about it. They simply know the literature too well and their (laughs) rebuttals are simply too knowledgeable. Tend to be people who are professionals and paid a lot of money. The people who developed the disinformation campaign and spread it have spent a lot of time the tobacco industry, one of the great marketing geniuses of the last century to be able to make so much money selling a product that kills its customers at such a high rate. I mean, it is a marketing triumph and and marketing was one of the fields that Americans, what's special about America. We, in many senses, developed marketing as a science, but the vast majority of people, people you will meet in the street, they'll run the denial talking points because they've heard them somewhere, but they're not you know, venal in the least, they have been presented a coherent story yes. that fits their worldview and supports the end state that they want. If you can't live with the treatment, you're going to be far more likely to deny the disease.
0: Joe Roman's founding editor of the Climate Progress News Blog. He's been discussing the controversy over climate disruption with Naomi Oreskes, professor of the history of science at Harvard, and Eugenie Scott, chair of the National Center for Science Education. Join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at climate1. Hydraulic fracturing or fracking has changed the global energy industry, unleashing a boom in oil and natural gas production. Petroleum prices have plunged, impacting both dirty and clean energy. Low natural gas prices have undercut plans for more nuclear plants. U.S. Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz joins me now to discuss this power puzzle. Before leading the Department of Energy for President Obama, Dr. Moniz was a physics professor and director of the MIT Laboratory for Energy and the Environment. Here's our conversation about energy options in the era of climate volatility. I want to start by asking you, when you were young, what was your inspiration to get into science? What led you into a career in science? Uh,
6: in high school, I was in those you know, relatively early years uh, post-Sputnik, and it just completely hooked me. And uh, that's the entire story through my uh, PhD and uh, much of my early career at MIT. And Some of the physicists who had been through the the war period felt that uh, faculty at MIT, at least, should really be part of uh, the public service. And that led, I guess, to my wandering off to government a few times.
0: Do you think that the climate challenge is sort of a Sputnik-like motivation for for younger students to get into science?
6: Absolutely. Uh, I would refer to my period at MIT in the last decade in which we started something called the MIT Energy Initiative. And uh, the enthusiasm and the commitment of the students to want to put their science and technology and management and economic talents to bring them to bear on this challenge, the climate challenge, uh, was really remarkable. And I think the climate challenge is one that's going to continue to hold the attention of our talented uh, students.
0: So we have the climate challenge. We also have this boom in in energy supply and production going on in the United States. Tell us where we are, you think, in terms of the Obama administration efforts to both manage this supply, this renaissance, while also reducing carbon pollution.
6: We are addressing uh, our energy challenges with three major objectives in mind. One is to support economic growth, good jobs, et cetera. Secondly is to reinforce our security, Uh, and third is uh, addressing the climate challenge. So the issue is how do we do all those three uh, uh, together, but uh, we are uh, roughly halfway towards the goal that President Obama put out in 2009 of a 17 percent reduction by 2020. And there's no question that uh, what's happening in energy has uh, led to economic growth and, uh, and jobs, Recently, Fortune magazine put out a list of 100 fastest growing companies. Twenty-six of those had their growth pegged to what's happening in energy. The abundance of relatively inexpensive natural gas, in turn, has supported much of the growth in manufacturing
0: cheap natural gas, driving manufacturing, et cetera, is is often heard. And yet uh, we've interviewed some people from McKinsey and elsewhere who say that might be true if you're in really energy intensive industries, but if you're making other things, energy costs are one or 2% of of your overall costs, your big costs are capital, your employees, et cetera. So the question is really whether that natural gas contribution is perhaps oversold in some cases as its contribution to growth and and manufacturing.
6: The fact is, we have large uh, energy-intensive uh, industries. On National Manufacturing Day, uh, I'm sure all of you were celebrating National Manufacturing <laughs> Day, <laughs> on October the 3rd, I went to a plant in, in New York. Their very high-tech ceramic-based product came out of a long row of kilns with natural gas mm-hmm. heating them, mm-hmm. so they had a competitive edge uh, from those low gas prices. There's a
0: couple of ways to address the carbon question, the climate question. People talk about making green energy cheaper or making brown energy more expensive. Which do you think is the right way?
6: We must remember that climate change can only have a global solution. And so the green technologies have to be deployed, of course, in the United States, in in Europe, in Japan. But in the end, the solution scales only when the emerging economies, the developing countries, also adopt those technologies. And that means we've got to drive the cost down to succeed. The good news is, we are. If you look at what's happened to solar energy, we've gone from you know, $10 a watt to $0.80 cents a watt for a solar module. Batteries for electric vehicles, a 3x reduction in cost in about six years. Now. That is not to say that we don't need economy-wide approaches to limiting carbon emissions. We do. The President's Climate Action Plan uh, has put forward a number. We have, of course, vastly increased efficiency standards for our vehicles.
0: And in some of those instances you cite, there were subsidies that were accelerated or helped cost reductions. Solar was subsidized in a lot of places. Should there be more subsidies for green energy or I think the president has tried to remove subsidies for brown energy so that the, the price differential is different?
6: There certainly have been subsidies, incentives for just about every form of energy as it is introduced. Part of it, of course, is we fund directly the early stage R&D, which typically is is not done by industry. But we also do work at the deployment end. In other cases, we have a very large loan program. And this is a way of jump-starting areas. For example, large-scale photovoltaic so-called utility scale, 100 megawatts and larger plants. In 2009, there were none in the United States. There was also, by the way, hardly any debt financing available for anyone. The DOE loan program came in. It provided help for five utility scale photovoltaic plants. All successes. Today, there are 17 additional projects exclusively with private financing. So that's the model we like. We come in, we help get this thing pushed off, and uh, then the private sector comes in to continue the the deployment. But we should emphasize, we need innovation in technology and innovation in business models happening at the same time. And so we announced a new contest, uh, $10 million uh, in prize money for teams that shorten the time from permit to lights on from about six months typically Uh, to a week. It's a big stretch. That will require innovation in a business model and in how the public sector addresses licensing. But that kind of innovation is just as important as the innovation that's driving the hardware costs down.
0: Let's talk about crude oil. There's so much being produced in the United States. There's talk of softening or eliminating the ban on crude oil exports. Should the United States
6: export crude oil? First of all, that is the responsibility of the Department of Commerce. Uh, (laughs) uh,
0: How how convenient. (laughs) uh,
6: And I certainly would not want to complicate their their deliberations. But the increase in our oil production is quite remarkable. Many think we will be the world's largest oil producer uh, within a few years.
0: No one ever thought that would happen.
6: Correct. Now, having said that, we still import 7.5 million barrels of crude oil per day. We are an enormous importer still. And so we have not taken our eye off the ball of reducing oil dependence. We are aggressively pursuing more efficient vehicles, alternative fuels like next generation biofuels, and electrification of vehicles like getting those costs down on batteries, even as we increase our oil production and lower imports.
0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guest today is U.S. Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz. Let's talk about nuclear power. It is a zero-carbon source of energy. The U.S. has, what, 103 or so nuclear power plants. The Obama administration has provided some new financing, some new plants for the first time. Yet, you're talking about the reduction of costs of lots of forms of energy. Nuclear keeps going up. All the other forms of energy keep going down. So is nuclear-wise, given the cost inflation that it's seen?
6: Look. These are not going to be inexpensive. They are basically capital-intensive. $10 billion. Exactly, but low cost relatively to operate. So that's that's the equation. We have four so-called Generation 3-plus nuclear plants being built in the United States, two in Georgia and two in South Carolina. These are the first new plants in decades. Their cost and schedule performance will be critical. If they come in reasonably close to to cost and schedule. I think we probably will see some additional plants, particularly in parts of the country where the regulatory structure allows cost recovery plus. And that's the southeast.
0: Which means consumers pay.
6: And and the southeast. Uh, Yes, it's it's that upfront cost. We also have a program for what are called small modular reactors. They look very attractive in terms of safety features, etc. We are supporting two of them, towards licensing in the range of 50 to 200 megawatts. So much smaller. How far in the future? We hope the first one will be operating in about 2022. But if you go smaller, it's gonna cost more per unit. So the idea here is these much smaller reactors would be built entirely on a factory production line. The question is, will the economics of manufacturing overcome the economics of scale. We don't know. There's a lot of interest in these because you don't need the $10 billion at a pop. There's a lot of interest in foreign countries for serving smaller loads, but we don't know. And we won't know until we try some of this, so we we are putting in fairly modest amounts of support to have these go towards licensing. But I do want to emphasize, we pursue an all-of-the-above approach. We put resources in to every fuel, fossil, nuclear, renewables efficiency that will lower emissions.
0: On the small nuclear reactors, I want to know what Homer Simpson has to say about those. There's got to be a Simpsons episode on that coming soon, if there isn't already. You talk about all the above. One of the tenets of capitalism is consumers have choice. Yet in choosing power, most consumers don't have choice. There's a monopoly power provider in each area. But should there be more competition and consumer choice for electricity in the United States?
6: There are many, again, business models uh, that are enabled by public policy, like renewable portfolio standards, uh, for example. Allowing consumers to buy green energy, that's great. Roughly half of our states have some form of renewable portfolio standard. In the Northeast, where I come from, uh, Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, we have a whole bunch of states uh, together in terms of uh, climate action. And by the way, the EPA rule on power plants emphasizes Flexibility in state responses to the carbon target and the ability for states to group together into regional groupings that can further aid them in meeting the targets. One of the main arguments for natural gas is that it's cleaner than coal, and yet there's
0: quite a debate about whether natural gas, when you consider the methane released during extraction, whether coal really is dirtier than natural gas. What's your view?
6: So with methane, we know what to do. I mean, we have to do it. And there has been a considerable reduction in methane emissions uh, from production, as far as we can see. But we are concerned about methane, the Department of Energy, uh, in, in a broader context. It's end-to-end. So, for example, we have in the transmission pipes, the compressors. We look forward to standards on compressors. And in a lot of cities, including my hometown Boston, we have a lot of very, very old pipe. We need to renew the infrastructure in this country and a lot of states and cities have come forward with innovative ways for their distribution companies to accelerate the replacement of this old infrastructure. We held five round with uh, all the stakeholders uh, on these issues of end-to-end methane emissions And a goal, which I think is a realistic goal, is to be able to get end-to-end emissions below 1%. I do want to emphasize, no one has ever said that just by producing more natural gas, we solve the climate problem. (laughs) It is a bridge to where we have the kinds of economy-wide policies that we can have very, very low carbon emissions.
0: Let's go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Mr. Secretary, I'm a career
4: banker. Been in Uh, renewable energy production the last 10 years. The government, federal and state, has been fantastic in so many ways in getting us up and moving. But nobody is helping us stay afloat. How are we going to stay in business if Congress continues killing everything? What can the Department of Energy do to help us stay in business? Going to run for Congress?
6: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we would prefer to work with Congress to get comprehensive legislation that would uh, advance our climate objectives. That obviously has not uh, happened. Uh, And so we are doing all that we can do using existing authorities. But I believe that uh, we will see a more comprehensive uh, approach taken legislatively, because I believe that the pressures to do so will mount. It will mount from business as the lack of predictability becomes a serious question. We're going to see it from, I think, from the broader public as the impacts of global warming that we are seeing today. You know, more and more those dots are being connected. We, we will be able to get to more, a more coherent, predictable approach.
0: Let's have our last audience question for Secretary Moniz.
5: You've mentioned beforehand that a lot of demand in the U.S. is decreasing, but as we all know, demand is increasing in places like China, India. So what has been the role of the U.S. DOE so far to help address the climate challenge in those emerging economies, and how do you see the role of the DOE in the future?
6: Well, we have uh, very strong engagements working with other countries in terms of clean energy. With China, uh, we've had a very energetic collaboration, For example, U.S.-China Clean Energy Research Center. It's a program where uh, both governments and industry in both countries comes together to do R&D, to do demonstrations, do analysis around clean energy. So it's taken quite seriously. And frankly, I would say that the Chinese leadership expressed very clearly their understanding about the importance of addressing climate change. We have similar dialogues with India, with Brazil, with South Africa, with some Middle Eastern countries, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, for example. We also have something actually called the Clean Energy Ministerial, which involves approximately 20 countries, started in 2009. And this is having some material benefits. For example, from the Clean Energy Ministerial, India became the first country in the world to really establish a set of standards for LED lighting. That will be very, very important uh, in terms of uh, obviously high efficiency, et cetera.
0: As we close here, I'd like to ask you one last thing about unburnable carbon. There's this idea out there that a significant amount of uh, carbon assets on the balance sheets of fossil fuel companies, oil, coal, gas, cannot be burned if the world's serious about maintaining civilization as we know it.
6: We need to keep working, driving down the costs such that the low carbon alternatives are going to be the best choice. They're good for security. Uh, you don't have to worry about importing the sun or the wind or, or earth the Earth's heat. And I think in the end, uh, the technology and associated business model innovations are going to have to carry the day.
0: We have been discussing Powering America's Economy with U.S. Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz. Thank you for joining us this hour. Free podcasts of this and other programs are available in the iTunes Store by searching Climate One. Join the conversation about powering America's future on Twitter using our handle at Climate1. <laughs> Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineers are John Rieger and Valerie Castro. The editor is Claire Schoen. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.